from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Washington Post. This is Colby. Yeah. Yeah. 何老师你好，我是华盛顿邮报记者施嘉欣。Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from the Washington Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, February twenty second. Today, the crisis in Venezuela intensifies. A new generation of climate activists, and Sunday's Oscars are already defined by scandal and backlash. Today in Venezuela, violence erupted at the border with Brazil. The international community attempted to send in trucks carrying much-needed humanitarian aid. Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro ordered the military to stop those trucks from entering the country, and military forces opened fire on local protesters trying to help the aid through. Although the U.S. recognizes his rival as a legitimate leader. Uh, he controls the military. He controls the security services, which means he controls the border, and he just refuses to let the aid in, both on the Brazilian border and at the Colombian border. Anne Guerin is a White House reporter for the Post. Saturday, the twenty-third, has been really set up as the showdown day. Juan Guaido, who is the interim president, from the U.S. perspective, a legitimate leader, has said that the aid will come in on Saturday, the twenty-third, no matter what. And that he would make that happen, and so he, of course, doesn't actually have guns and tanks and, and and so forth at his disposal the way Maduro does. But he does have a lot of popular support, and so the question will be whether he can mobilize enough popular support on the Venezuelan side of the border that it becomes sort of unmanageable for the Venezuelan military to prevent the aid from crossing. And this is all happening as Vice President Pence is preparing to go to Colombia on Monday to meet with world leaders about the political crisis in Venezuela. Anne will be traveling with Pence, and she's been reporting on the administration's response to what's been happening. I mean, this could all be sort of over as a giant clash by the time Pence gets to Colombia, which is a bordering country. Or not? There's another thing happening today and tomorrow and into Sunday as well, which is this sort of bizarre battle of the bands that is happening at the uh, at the Colombian border, uh, where you know Richard Branson and is, is staging a concert, Maduro staging a rival concert, uh, like you know, <laughs> in addition to there actually being a legitimate national security and humanitarian crisis here, it comes with music. Uh, we somewhat think that, bizarre confluence yeah, of yeah, events. exactly. We think that part will be over by Monday. Uh, but the diplomatic crisis will be very much alive on Monday. And if this goes badly and there actually are casualties and, uh, it, you know, the, the next couple of days uh, are, uh, are are really dicey, then it will fall to Pence to talk to Latin American leaders who are meeting in in Bogota to to talk about how uh, the response to Venezuela, both diplomatic, economic, and otherwise. It'll help. It'll fall to him to to communicate what U.S. policy is at that point, and we don't know what that will be. What's really interesting about this situation is that the Trump administration, in many other ways, has been very leery about getting involved in international conflicts. And the president has talked a lot about his America First approach. But yet, in this one instance in Venezuela, the U.S. has taken a lead in calling for change and trying to incite some action and trying to bring in a new leader in Venezuela. Why has the Trump administration made this its cause? 
Well, that is a very good question that I don't have a simple answer for. One answer is that the antipathy that Trump shares with a lot of his closest national security advisors for Cuba is sort of automatically and easily transferred to Venezuela. The two nations are codependent. Their governments are intertwined. Trump thinks that Obama botched the Cuba policy. Obama didn't really have a active and and particularly identifiable Venezuela policy, but as a spillover matter, one was bad, the other is bad. Venezuela has gotten a lot worse since the Obama administration. That's on Trump's watch. He's watched it get worse. It is a legitimate humanitarian crisis. And he sees that. He understands that this is happening in our hemisphere, that this is not something that is terribly far away. There's also, I think, a a human interest here that makes it a more pressing question for Trump than it might be happening around, halfway around the world. And and that's that Miami, and particularly, uh, is a, a center of Venezuelan expatriate activity. Again, a heavy overlap with Cuban expatriate political activity. And Trump knows Florida. Trump knows the Florida Republicans. He understands how politics works in Florida. There is a large contingent which has a lot of money and has a lot of political sway that in South Florida has very long for 40 years has has had a a heavy anti-Castro Cuban expatriate leadership and community. The Venezuelan overlap there is 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 heavy. So Trump is personally familiar with that side of the story in a way that that he's not personally familiar with a lot of other humanitarian or sort of foreign policy issues around the world generally. And he just he's surrounded by people for whom this is a real pressing issue. And they have made a case to him that this is something that the United States should care about. And it's a place where the United States could potentially make a difference. And so he's decided to to do, as you suggest, something that on its face seems unlike him, which is to risk American intervention uh, and and sort of, you know, essentially put things on the line. And it is a risky strategy. The United States was the first to recognize Juan Guaido as the interim president. That happened, you know, within minutes of his declaring himself to be the legitimate leader. Uh, And then the obvious question flows from that is, okay, so what are you going to do to actually make that happen? What are you willing to put on the line to make this guy the president? Exactly, because there has been some sort of vague talk about whether there could be military action from the U.S. that would help support Juan Guaido into actually taking power as interim president. But what are the chances that that the Trump administration would actually do that? I mean, you would say that the chances are low, right, just looking at it. However, even before Guaido was on the scene, Trump had talked about the at least theoretical possibility of using military force to displace Nicolas Maduro as leader because Maduro had been shaking his fist at the United States and Trump thought, you know, like, why is that guy still there? Like, his country's falling apart. His policies are terrible. The economy is in shambles. All the rich people are leaving. Why is that guy still in office? Can't we just, like, launch a missile? And lots of people surrounding Trump, this was a year ago, were like, "Mm, no, we can't do that right now. Uh, so it didn't happen. But now they're actually we've got, you know, military planes carrying aid landing at the border. It ceased to be a a, a theoretical off the cuff uh, uh, question. 
would those planes hop the border and land uh, only on the say-so of Juan Guaido, who we say is the leader, but he actually doesn't control the military? If we do, uh, Maduro will say that's an invasion. And yeah, then you could, you could see that that could quickly escalate. Very quickly. If President Trump were to successfully be able to steer Juan Guaido into actually becoming interim president and kicking Maduro out of power, do you think that he would see that as a major political win, not just like on the international scene, but something that he could talk about to voters back Absolutely. home? Absolutely. And he would be right. I mean, if being on the right side morally, which which is what he would argue he is now, turns out to be, in the end, the right side geopolitically, then yeah, they'll, they'll claim it as a win and have considerable backing and reason to do so. The strategy now is to persuade those keeping Maduro in power that they have more to lose by sticking with them than by peeling off. That can be a slow policy of attrition, or it, there can be some forcing issues like it looks like this weekend is going to be. Anne Guerin covers the White House for The Post. She's scheduled to head to Columbia with Mike Pence early next week. Kids can see through, like, the veil of yes and money. We don't want to grow up in a world like that. And we don't want to have our whole lives affected by climate change. Alexandria Villasenor isn't your typical 13-year-old. I think out of my family, we always knew I was going to be doing something, like, social-wise. Alexandria lives in New York City. And every Friday, with her mom's permission... I wake up pretty early at, like, 6 a.m. I'll get my signs, I'll hop onto the subway, all the way to Grand Central, where I walk to um, the U.N. And once I get to the U.N., normally I just sit there for about four hours. To protest in the name of climate change activism. A couple people had come up and said, why aren't you standing in front of Trump Tower? But climate change is a global problem of all the world leaders. And so that's why I stand in front of the U.N. And this seventh grader is not alone. She's one of many teenagers around the globe who've joined the School Strike for Climate movement. Until we get a lot of climate action, I think this will be my life. They want the U.N. and the nations of the world to commit to restricting emissions 1.5 by 2030. Sarah Kaplan covers science for The Post. And the 1.5 that she's referring to is the amount of global warming in degrees Celsius that the world can tolerate before there are disastrous effects from climate change. A recent UN report says that we have until 2030 to achieve the kind of drastic emissions reductions that are needed to prevent that disaster. Alexandria's ambition was inspired by a 15-year-old Swedish girl named Greta Thunberg, who stood in front of a crowd at the UN climate meeting COP24 a couple months ago, and she'd criticized global leaders for failing to take action. And for Alexandria, the effects of that inaction have really hit close to home. She'd actually grown up in California, and she had been back 
in California visiting family at the end of November when the campfire destroyed the town of Paradise. And she was not that far away, maybe an hour and a half's drive. And so her home was covered in smoke from the fire. And it was so bad outside. People were dropping on the streets in downtown Davis. And she saw these really disturbing images on the news. Usually smoke gets cleared up pretty easily, but nothing was pushing the smoke along because the climate was all messed up. That led to, well, okay, why are wildfires happening in California so severely and so frequently? And it's because California is hotter and drier than it's been in the past. And then why is that? It's because climate change is altering the state's climate and environment. You know, the more research she did, the more sort of fired up she got. And then sort of the breaking point was... I saw Greta Thunberg speak. Right around then is when Greta spoke at COP24. She had come up all over the news of climate change. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. And she saw that and she was like, oh, I need to do what Greta's doing. Like, this is who I need to be. And so what does she do after that? So literally that week, December 14th, she decided to not go to school on Friday. And she brought her two signs. One of them says school strike for climate. And the other one says COP24 failed us. And she went to the U.N. and sat down in front and just sat there all day. And she's been doing that consistently every Friday since. Every Friday, she's just sitting on the steps of the United Nations with these two signs. So she's got a bench. She calls it her bench. And actually, some of her fans have like put a geomarker on it on Google Maps. And it says, like, Alexandria's bench. It's New York in the winter, so there's rain, there's wind. There was the polar vortex. For me, like, that weather was really hard for my body to deal with. Her mom had to, like, zip her up in a sleeping bag. But she's she's tough. And she says, you know, it's my future on the line. And so... I have to be here. For Alexandria and other kids around the world who are making their names as climate activists, as kids, how are they being received? I think the lens through which people see these kids says a lot about what they think about climate change in the first place. I mean, the leading climate activists, I think, are totally blown away by them. I saw Alexandria have a meeting with the dean of science at Columbia University, Peter Domenical, who's a climate researcher. And he was like, oh, my gosh, how can I help? How can I get on board? And she goes, you can organize the adults. Like, we're ready for them now. <laughs> and Greenpeace and the Sierra Club and the Sunrise Movement, which does a lot of advocating for the Green New Deal, all of these groups are assisting with the global climate strike. They want to help out. I think they recognize the power of these kids' voices. At the same time, Alexandria also gets trolls on Twitter who tell her, like, you should be in school or, you know, you're just a kid. What do you know? And a lot worse things, too. Her mom actually has to monitor her social media accounts and will block things before Alexandria sees them. But now I really don't care. I mean, society will judge you no matter what you do. So, I mean, why take in their opinion? And what about the people in positions of power? I mean, I think it remains to be seen. These kids have faced a lot of skepticism from people in power. The prime minister in Australia, when there were protests there last year, you know, told kids that they should be back in school studying 
geology so they can learn how to mine coal or something along those lines. An environment minister in Belgium alleged that the protests had been a setup. Right after that happened, the minister was forced to resign, and the next day there were 20,000 kids in the streets of Brussels. So I think that some public officials are kind of learning the consequences of underestimating this movement. And it remains to be seen, you know, whether it has staying power. For these young climate activists, how is what they're doing different from regular adult climate activists? I think that climate scientists and activists have sort of been telling the same story for decades about what's at stake and what could be lost. And humans keep emitting and global average temperature keeps going up. And I think that the power of these kids is they're not willing to pass the buck and they're not willing to let us get away with it anymore. Sarah Kaplan is a science reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. The Oscars. The top award show of the season will air this Sunday night on ABC. But people have been talking about it for months. So this might be the most disastrous lead up to the Oscars ever, or at least in modern history. Emily Yar covers entertainment for The Post. She says that in trying to reinvent itself, the award show has wound up facing scandal after scandal. Because, you know, usually the narrative kind of surrounding the Oscars before the show is who's going to win Best Picture or who might be an upset, you know, in some of the acting categories. But this year, it's kind of been all about the mistakes the Academy has made before the show, so much that it could, you know, overshadow the actual ceremony. This is everything from trying to create a most popular film category, which got a lot of backlash and the Academy scrapped that idea. Kevin Hart ended up dropping out as host after homophobic tweets and jokes surfaced on social media, and there was a lot of controversy about that. The Academy really wants to cut down the time of the Oscars. The TV ratings have been falling, and so they tried to cut out some categories from the show. Then people got very upset about that. They tried to get rid of playing all the original songs on the show. Again, there was backlash, and they had to restore them. So it's been just a lot of controversy. Emily says that the key awards like Best Picture are still up in the air. But one thing is very clear. Even though fewer people are watching the Oscars each year, plenty of people are still invested in the outcome of the awards. Personally, I didn't realize how many people, you know, just casual viewers, deeply cared about the Oscars until this year when there was backlash for almost every decision. So that's kind of been fascinating to watch play out over the last few months. Emily Yar covers pop culture and entertainment for The Post. That's it for today's show. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who composes original music and does sound design for the show. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. 
We've been making post reports for a couple months now, and we want to hear what you think about the show. Go to postreports.com slash survey to share your thoughts. It takes just a few minutes, and you'll be entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card. That's postreports.com slash survey.